John the Viking Mauser here with the Get Strong or Die podcast. Today, my guest is the legendary Dave Tate. How are you doing today? Great, thank you. <clears throat> uh, let's get started off with a, a brief um, history, if you don't mind. Uh, tell us a little bit about um, the man, the myth, the legend here. It's, I say this, I think every time I do an interview is I keep trying to make this more and more concise because I've been in this shit for a long time. Um, I, I got involved in the sport of powerlifting when I was 13 is when I first competed. I was training for the meet when I was 12. And that's how I kind of got introduced to strength training and what strength training could do for my life. You know, from there, just to do a, a real quick resume type thing. Uh, after high school, I worked with, for that summer, I worked with the football team as far as their strength and conditioning. And I also worked as a fitness instructor at a local club at the time. So we're going back to 86. And then dabbled with college with the, uh, several different degrees until I finally one semester away from graduating said, fuck it. This is not what I want to do. I want to, I want to, I want to make people strong. You know, I want to do something, but you got to understand back then there were no, there were no real tracks. The professions that exist today, they weren't professions back then. So it was, you know, do I want to manage a health club and you know, all this kind of shit. So it, it took a while to finally make the commitment to say, you know, look, I want to go down this road because it's what I love to do rather than, you know, business or something like that. So throughout college, I did work as a, a gym manager, which was still kind of training people. It wasn't really called personal training at the time. It was just called what the manager of the gym does, you know, because you retain clients or members by them getting better. So once I graduated from college with the degree was in exercise science and nutrition. I moved to Columbus to train with Louis Simmons and Westside Barbell. Continued my education in regards to strength and conditioning through that for 14 years. While I was in town, worked as a personal trainer and coordinating a personal training program for eight years. That kind of all parlayed into... Uh, forming Elite FTS, which has been in business now for very, very close to 21 years, and all with the premise of strength and conditioning, um, bringing products to market that help people. So it's educating and outfitting the strongest athletes in the world is kind of a tagline that we use. But what we really do is we just help people become stronger. You know, we do that through the education that we put out and the products that we put out. And we do not charge for educational content. So we have over a million pages on our website through Q&As, articles, and different educational outlets that are all free. There's no paywalls. There's no logins. There's no registration. There's none of that bullshit. And that was all done because the majority of the learning that I received in this field while I have a degree and that did cost money, I really don't use a whole lot from what I learned in school. What I use the most is the information that other people just gave to me. You know, they love training, so they wanted to share that. 
So a lot of the reason why the company was formed, well over probably 90% of the reason, because it started off with just me answering questions and writing articles, was to kind of give back for what they gave me. And that's where we have an aim of the company, which is my personal aim to live, learn, and pass on. So it's it's something that I'll continue to do, even though it's it's vastly out of trend now. You know, nobody seems to want to give back. They all want to seem to monetize everything that they're trying to do, which I think is a disservice to the industry, but I don't have to be a part of it. So, <clears throat> Very cool. Um, so you spent uh, you spent a significant amount of time at uh, the West Side, right? How many years were you there? Fourteen. Fourteen years. Yeah. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? What what the environment was like and and uh, just your experience, your overall experience there? Yeah, it was. I I didn't go there as a stranger. It's uh, Louie. I like I said, I started competing at a very young age. And Louie was one of the guys that I can name several other guys that would always kind of help me out in a warm-up room. And I always had good people that were helping me, even when I first started training for powerlifting, because I was thrown into a powerlifting gym. So I didn't have a lot of the commercial gym training time that most people do. I mean, I was thrown into a gym, and I just thought, this is what you do in gyms. You powerlift. You know, it's, I, I didn't know there were a whole lot of other options except bodybuilding, which I only saw in magazines. And um, so, but Louie would help and he would, we built, I don't even want to say it was a relationship and I, I'm not even sure you could say it was acquaintances, but, you know, we recognized each other over the years, you know, competing. And I had a, a spell in college where I couldn't find a good group of people to train with. So, and my friends were bodybuilders. So I said, fuck it, you know, I'm going to bodybuild for a few years. And ended up putting on maybe 20 pounds of lean body mass. Got a lot bigger. You know, all my accessory work got way stronger. And then when I decided that really wasn't for me, and I went back into powerlifting, the, the first meet I went to, it was awful, man. I told, I was a weight class heavier. And I totaled like 200 pounds lower. And I was so fucking confused because everything was stronger except what counted. And I remember Louie being there and Chuck Vogelpohl was with him at the time. And they came up to me and Louie was saying, Jesus Christ, man, you're way fucking bigger. You know, what have you been doing? And I said, and I remember saying, it doesn't fucking matter because I'm weak as piss. <laughs> and, um, so then we talked a little bit about what was going on, and um, he started talking to me about, you know, dynamic effort method, max effort method, all this other kind of stuff. And I was studying strength and conditioning at the time, and these were foreign methods to me, and I was reading well beyond, you know, magazines and the textbooks that I was studying. As, you know, I stumbled across the Soviet Sport Review. I mean, I thought I knew everything. I mean, there's been maybe three times in my life where I thought I've known everything about training only to find out I didn't know a fucking thing. Um, this, this was one of those times. And so after speaking to Louie, he said, you know, after, after you graduate, you should come to Columbus. And my wife or girlfriend at the time, she was from Columbus. So it, it was a feasible option. And I knew after I graduated, I was either going to, stay in Toledo and work in Detroit, 
which I was kind of already doing, or moved to Cleveland to train at Black's Health World. And there was a gym in Detroit as well, and um, or Columbus. So it really wasn't a matter of where was my professional career going to take me. It was a matter of what would be the best gym environment to be able to help with my powerlifting. And with the final decision was made really about five weeks before graduating. And Matt Demo was a friend of mine that was, he trained at Westside. And I came up to Columbus to do a bench meet and ended up tearing my pack really bad at that meet. And um, completely tore the tendon off the humerus. And, I mean, it was a, definitely had to have surgery. And I remember Louie coming up and speaking to me and saying that, you know, because at that point, I, I've been, I was stuck, man. My total was stuck for two years. I tried everything. I tried block training, every type of, you know, periodization you could think of from undulating. I mean, I don't want to get into all the different types of periods. I tried pretty much everything I knew. And Louie told me that really the, based upon how much pounding I put on my body at that time, the, there was only one way for me to advance, and that was his way. And at least it was hope. You know, because at that point, I'm like, you know what? I've been doing this since I was 13. I'm now graduated. Maybe it is time I close this chapter and, you know, start looking at a real life, you know, and, and where to go from here. But he gave me that little nudge. I was like, you know what? Fuck it. Maybe I can keep life on hold and, and uh, keep this powerlifting thing the first priority. And moved to Columbus and then hated everything he was doing disagreed with everything for uh, probably a year you know so I, I purposely trained in the afternoon which I knew he wasn't in the gym with a few other guys because everything he was doing I thought was complete bullshit you know like how can you get stronger lifting 50% for a bunch of sets of three you know the dynamic effort work and um, the max effort work to me just made no fucking sense like you, you can't lift over 90% every week without beating the fuck out of yourself. So we kind of came to a point where it was a discussion of, you know, either you need to get better, because I did compete twice and didn't do anything worth the fuck. It's like you either need to get better or get the fuck out. And I remember saying back to him, I will change my schedule and I'll come train in the morning. You, I'll do exactly what you fucking tell me to do. You know, so this way I was putting it all on him. So if I don't get better, it's your fault, not mine. Okay. Well, shit, within the next year, I put 325 pounds on my total. Then it was, you know, and as I was getting stronger, and we never really did the, the, the competitive lifts in the gym, so you really didn't know where you were until you went to a meet. And we didn't train in the gear. You know, it's a misconception everybody has. We didn't try, so, so you didn't wear your suits, you didn't wear all this kind of shit until you got to the meet, so you didn't know, and it's like, holy fuck, I'm getting strong as fuck every single meet. Then I started asking him, now what are these Russian manuals you keep talking about? Because I thought, he, I really thought he was just making shit up. I really did. And then, um, and then he gave me a couple of them to look at and gave me the source to be able to buy some from, and I started reading through them, and... First off, I was amazed at his ability to disseminate this information in a way to apply it to powerlifting. But I also had a much easier way, easier time wading through 
all the information because it is dense and it's very boring. But I was reading it in such a way to validate what he was doing. So I wasn't reading it like I would read things today to disprove a certain belief that I have. I was reading it in a way to validate or to prove what we were doing and was just, I couldn't believe he fucking did it. At that point, I realized this fucking old man is a genius, you know, and then he started to train again and started to get strong as fuck. And it's like, wait a minute. Now this fucking guy is stronger than me, you know, and we trained my time at Westside to a large part of it, probably 60% of it. I trained, we call it swapping sets. I trained with Louie. For, for the majority of the time. So he was not just like a coach. I don't even think we ever used the word coach. And if he did, he would say, I am not your fucking coach. <laughs> you know, it's, we were more training partners. I mean, he would, he taught me, he taught everybody in the gym, but he taught us the methodology so we could look. He taught us the technique and he taught us the methodology. He taught us how to find weak points. He taught all of us, you know, how to make each other better because one of his main roles was it was my if you were in there it was my job to make you stronger than me if we're in the same weight class and that was a universal rule so if you got stronger than me then it became your job to make me stronger than you which meant i had to watch every set you did to make sure your techniques on point and vice versa so that way when anybody was squatting it wasn't just Louie looking at you. I mean, he could be down there doing reverse hypers for all you know. But you had four or five other people, you know, looking at every single movement that you're doing because nothing's ever perfect to be able to cue that movement, to be able to make it better. So that was the overriding theme of, of what Westside was, is what, you know, Louie used to say, you know, he already knew what Westside could do for you. What can you do what for Westside? You know, so can you help the other lifters get stronger? Can you put your name up on the record board? Can you break the world record? You know, what what can you add to the gym? Because we knew what the gym could do for you. And, you know, so it was very unselfish. Were there fights and were there outbreaks? Oh, fuck yeah. You know, it was a 400-square-foot gym and 20 guys. And I think we had maybe one or two guys that were 181, but let's say most of them were over 220. When you stick, and, and we trained, I mean, he was very strict. We trained at 8.30, so you showed up at 8.30, you got there at 9 o'clock, you throw your ass out. So we were all trained, and there was a night crew, and an AM crew, and a PM crew. So you stick 15 people in the gym all getting ready for meets, and, I mean, you're kind of shoulder to shoulder because the place is not big which forced you to have to watch everybody lift too. So there's a lot of pros, probably more pros than there are negatives. But at the same time, you're razzing people, you know, it's talking shit in the gym is how I grew up, you know, so that was nothing new to me. I was probably perfected that skill better than anybody else. You know, you find what gets under, buddy, you find what gets under somebody else's skin, you can use that to your advantage, you know, and you can use it to their advantage. You know, the right thing said before the right lifts can make a huge difference to a guy. And, um, but sometimes things cross the line and, you know, I can remember one, it was, this is one of the funnier ones. It was a dynamic bench workout and, you know, we have three benches going at the same time. And the way that we did these training sessions is there might be four or five people all benching at the same time. So you had one behind one guy on each side, 
one guy lifting and then one guy basically wrapped and ready to go. So as soon as the one guy got off the bench, the next guy was laying down. And by the time he got down, if there was a weight change, the weight change was already done by whoever was on the side. And then you just rotated around that circle. And usually the, the benches would be divided up so there weren't big weight changes. You know, you didn't have to pull a plate off to put a dime on or anything like that. You could just throw, you know, a quarter and three dimes or whatever the fuck it was. You know, it was pretty easy weight changes. There was one time where I don't know what caused the altercation in the first place, but there was a there was a fight going on probably two foot, three foot away from where your feet would be when you bench, right in front of the bench, and we didn't break stride at all. I mean, it just it kept on. Nobody even bothered to break these two fucking guys up. It was just boom, 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 boom. Set after set after set after set after set. And when it was over, I think one of the guy had, you know, dislocated his elbow or something like that. But, you know, it, it was that, I, I use that as an example because it was, it was kind of such commonplace that it, it was just ignored. Unless, you know, the only time it really wasn't ignored is if somebody disrespected Louie, that was kind of, you know, there, there was so far you could push before the rest of the guys were going to say, hey, look, you know, you don't fucking, there are some things you just didn't deal with. You know, like you never, you could criticize anybody personally, but you never criticize their lift. You know, they earn the lift. You know, you can, you can fuck with their, you can fuck with their, their mom, sister, whatever you want, but don't fucking criticize their lift. Um, so that was, that was about it. I mean, it was, it was just serious. You know, you went in there and you knew it was serious. Everybody else in there was serious. If you weren't serious, you got thrown out. <clears throat> yeah, that's cool. That That's, uh, and, and you hear a lot of similar, um, stories, uh, from other, other people that have come out of there. I think the, the, um, environment and the, the atmosphere there is, uh, a, a huge thing. I think a lot of other people could, probably benefit from that but you don't really find other um other facilities that have that environment or that atmosphere not even close um you know and i can't speak for when i was there the gym was on demerst road and then for two years before i left we moved to a new location and to me you know, kind of being an old timer where most of my time was spent in the Denver's location. You know, there might've been a year or two that was when he was on Sullivan Avenue. I knew the Denver's location. So when we moved to the new location, it was like four times as big. I hated that man because you lost that in each other's face type of thing. Mm -hmm. And, um, where anybody knew coming in wouldn't know any different, you know? And I kind of think that's where, at least from the generation I was in was kind of where the passing of the guard really started to take place where a lot of the older guys, you know, began to filter out either because of injury or, you know, personal reasons or life or whatever it's going to be. But then the newer guys who came in were able to, you know, take the lifting to a whole nother level because Louie was able to learn from our injuries and our mistakes so, you know, the newer guys didn't have to go through the same stuff. But that was one thing I didn't like about the new place, though, is it was it was just too spread out. It was, it was you know, I, it, the environment changed too much for me in that regard. But I was pretty much 
on my last leg anyhow, so it didn't make that much. It wasn't worth complaining about. Right. So uh, you mentioned in the training there that you didn't really um, use the gear a lot in the in the weight room. Um, you saved that for the uh, competitions. Can you elaborate on that just a little bit? Yeah, I mean, gear gear obviously changed a lot within you know a thirty year period of time. It's when my first competition, there was no, and that was in 83, there was no raw division. You know, you had an entry form and you were required to wear a lifting suit. And if you wanted to wear a bench shirt, you'd wear a bench shirt. But, you know, in 83, 84, the equipment was okay. You know, it was more uncomfortable than it was really helping you out. But it did help. I would say the squat suits back then might help you out as much as some of the radical knee sleeves do now. You know, maybe... 30, 40 pounds, but man, it was uncomfortable as hell, but you had to wear them. And so you would try to wear them as tight as you possibly could. But if you went too tight, you'd blow the ass out, you know? So the, I, the number of times that I saw somebody's ass crack because they're wearing a jock strap and their suit blew out is in the hundreds. Um, but as, as the sport progressed, you know, year got better. And I didn't even know there was such a thing as double ply gear until I got the left side. And so I had 10 years of competing in a three, uh, I think three elites under my belt before I even got there. And then Louis's like, what the fuck is this? And I'm like, it's a squat suit. He says, hey, you know, squat suit. You know, you need to call France. You need to order a double ply. I'm like, double ply? What the fuck are you talking about? He's like, well, it's just like two layers. I mean, it's like two suits. He's like, no, it's just two layers that are sewn together. You'll get a lot more out of it. I'm like, can they sew three? You know, it wasn't like I was opposed to it. It's like, <laughs> holy fuck. You know, and now I'm like, now wait a minute. You can wear a briefs and a suit. So can the briefs be double ply too? You know, because fuck, I wanted to lift as much weight as I could. And, but even with the double ply stuff, it helped more. It definitely helped more. And the bench shirts became, you know, for most of uh, probably until I think West Side's when I really committed to a venture. Those fucking things, you know, it was it was like a straight jacket. They were so uncomfortable and would just tear your armpits to fucking shreds. And at best, I might get twenty pounds out of it. I was like, fuck it. I just I'll squat twenty pounds more to not have to use this thing. And um, but as the shirts got better and everything got better, you know. You had to use it more, but when I came to West Side, it hadn't got to that point yet. So it was still there wasn't really a big learning curve with the gear. So we trained in briefs, you know that he insisted on that training in squat briefs, just because he, he told us all to squat wide, you know, to protect the hips, you know, kind of like you know elbow sleeves or knee sleeves or something like that. And um, so we all used that, but then didn't put our suits on or knee wraps until we went. To and then when, when we went to the meet, you kind of got a little bit of a carryover, you know, because this is the first time that you're really using it. We, I mean, we put it on to make sure it still fit. I mean, you didn't want to be an idiot, right. you know, and go up a weight class and it not fit. But most of the time I knew if my weight class was still the same, it was going to fit. So I didn't even want to bother putting it on because it's, it's a pain in the ass. And um, but then over the course of, and it made, it made training easier too. I mean, it was still, training was still hard. I mean, that's a given. Training's going to be hard. Um, but it, it wasn't a variable you had to figure out how to train. It wasn't like add wraps this far out because 
the way we box squatted was exactly the same as how we free squatted. So while we did zero free squats in the gym, it didn't make any difference because the technique was 100% the same in the knee. It was just removing the box, adding a stretch reflex, and then having the suit to be able to provide for um, a carryover as well. Did it fuck with me the first time? Oh, God, yes. Because I was used to the old school approach where you would start with uh, briefs, and then eight weeks out, you'd go briefs and wraps. Six weeks out, you'd go suit, briefs, wraps. You know, four weeks out, suit straps up. So you had some training time in your gear. This was just like, fuck it. You know, you, had, you did nothing. It's like, okay, what do you want to open with at the meet? And I'm like, I, fuck, I don't know. And Louis like, well, open with you did your last meet. I'm like, Jesus Christ. You know, I haven't had anywhere near 200 pounds of this on my back. And I squatted a PR. You know, but that it was a big leap of faith because I'm like, and who knows? Maybe it was just being scared out of my fucking mind that I was going to get killed with my opener, <laughs> that everything was so easy. But over the next several years, the, the, the suit started to move from just regular polyester suit to much thicker polyester and started moving to canvas. The bench shirt started to work, move into denim. And we still tried the same approach. I even remember the first couple times I used my canvas squat suit. It was just at the meet. I put it on the gym, make sure it fit, and then put it on at the meet. But then what happened was we started to get smoked by people that we knew we were stronger than. It's like this, this, this shit ain't right. You know, it's you know, some this this guy just benched you know seven hundred pounds or six hundred fifty pounds, and I know for a fact the fucker can't bench four hundred five. You know, meanwhile, I have a 525, 540, and I'm getting like 600 or 580 out of my shirt. So then, it, you know, that, that we were probably a little late in adapting to that and, and, and putting it into the training. And when we did, it was a lot of catch-up, you know, because now we had to learn the skill of the suit, the skill of the gear, which I hated at the time. But looking back on it, I think it was really, and like, people disagree with me left and right on this, I think it was one of the best things to happen to the sport because powerlifting is such a genetically, if you have great genetics for powerlifting and your technique's good, you're pretty much unstoppable. You know, nobody's going to beat you. You know, if your genetics are that much better, it doesn't matter how much somebody practices their squat or, or how hard they train, they will not beat that guy. It's just, I've been in this shit for too long. It's just not going to happen. What the gear did was now, if the guy who was that genetic outlier didn't learn the skill of how to use the gear, he would only get 20, 30, 40 pounds out of a bench shirt where the guy who put in the time and learned the skill would get 250 and coming from a sport background where the more you worked your technique, the more the, the weaker person could win if their skills were better. So this provided a little, you know, uh, I don't want to say even the playing field, but in a way it kind of did, mm-hmm. you know, because it, it added a whole nother element. But the problem with the element, when that gear got what we call gangstered up, you know, is, <laughs> Your body changes as you get closer to a beat. And this is if you're drug-free or not. Your body changes. You get harder. You get a little bit heavier. 
Um, sometimes you'll get a little bit smaller because there's less hypertrophy work and there's more strength work. So you really can't start working the gear if it fits right until you're about 90% of your max strength, which is usually no more than four or five weeks before a meet. Well, fuck, you know, now during the time when you're supposed to kind of be tapering down, you have to all of a sudden start using this piece of equipment that's going to allow you to handle, you know, loads of 100, 120, maybe 140, 150% of what you really can do raw. So how the fuck do you put that in your training without beating the shit out of you? You know, it's like, that's where, and I still have multi-five lifters now. I think I have the only ones left in the fucking world, but I still have a few multi-five lifters here. That's the hardest part. It's the last five weeks of, of integrating, because now they're all strong enough because they're, they're either meets are over or they're three or four weeks out. Now they're strong enough to really start learning the gear. Well, shit, how do you do that and not overtrain? You know, because the loads on the spinal column are going to be way higher than what they're used to handling. You know, if it's cervical, you know, in a bench or spinal in, in a squat. So that's kind of a long answer to the question. But I was there for that whole migration at Westside. And before I left, I don't think Louie really figured it out yet. You know, because it is, it's, it's taking a normal training program, which is already when you're dealing with athletes that are at a high level, the strength spectrum, it's already hard. You know, it's, it's already very, very detailed and everything really matters. And then throwing in a giant tidal weight to be able to, to factor in. And I would say he probably figured it out a couple years after I left, you know, and I mean, now it's, now it's not a problem. The guys know they're here but it's 2% of the total sport anymore. So it's, I don't want to say it's irrelevant because, you know, for so many years there was no, Raw only started about 2012 is when Federation started to add the Raw division. And I think the last to adapt was the USAPL IPF. And I think they, it might've been 2014 or yeah, I'd have to look it up with 2014 and, so actually, we're really, really new to the whole raw thing because there might have been, and I don't even know if it's really raw anymore either, but it was only, I think the sport started in 62, 62 or 68. And um, so it took maybe 10, 15 years to be able to, for the year to come in. But I mean, back then those guys were putting tennis balls behind ace wraps, you know, for knee wraps, they were squatting in denim shorts. You know, so everybody was kind of always looking for a way, you know, for an edge, you know, with that, where now it's the edges, you know, how the, um, the, the racks are made and how the sleeves are made and stuff like that. But it's, I don't know if it's ever going to go back to full-fledged multi-ply being a dominant part of the sport or just gear, but it's, it's, it's just different, but it's, it makes the training process a hell of a lot easier, I'll tell you that, because I work with raw and multi-ply, and it's so much easier to train the raw. It's easier to train um, raw? Oh, Jesus Christ, yes, because I don't have that big tidal wave of gear, yeah. you know, to worry about. So I can just stick with, you know, the programming as it is. You know, it's 
keep in mind the people I work with, I don't charge them. It's it's our gym. It's it's a it's a private gym, and I'm not going to work with anybody unless I know I'm going to have them around for at least five or six weeks. So my goal is to either get you know take them from an average lifter to an elite lifter or a pro lifter, because that's what I love to do. You know, I love those finer details to be able to get people to that next level, and so it's so I do. I, I do have a template. I do have a written program, but I can put it on the wall or I can email it to them for the week. But by the time that week's over, what they're going to actually do is going to be 60 to 70% different because coaching is different than writing programs. Right. Coaching is, you know, I got to pay attention to what they look like when they walk in the door, you know, what their nonverbal communication is what they're doing in between sets, what they look like after they rack a bar, what their warm-ups look like. You know, so there's all these micro decisions that are being made. Like, you know, do the bar again. You know, take 135 one more time. You know, and sometimes it's not because their physical skill set doesn't look good. Their, their mind is not right yet. You know, it's not where it needs to be. So to me... You know, the coaching aspect of the sport is what I like most because you got to pivot so much and you got to pay attention. You got to pay attention even when they don't think you're paying attention. You know, so you're on the other side of the gym and there's a, there's a lot of, I know all their, all their, I, I know all their tells and I won't even tell them on a podcast because if they listen and they know they're going to fuck it, you know, they're going to change it, you know, but some of them, if their shoulders stop, I know their confidence is dropping and then it's the question is, is it confidence or are they actually worn out? You know, do we need to back it down? You know, so that's the part of the training that I like. So, um, it's important to note that, you know, I don't charge them and I do it just for the, the love of doing it. And I also have the ability to throw anybody out at any time. Right. You know, so <laughs> that, that, that helps as well. Yeah, that's always a good bonus, huh? <laughs> <laughs> they, um, they pay nothing, so it's just see you later. <laughs> um, so uh, a random question here. Um, when it comes to uh, footwear um, for powerlifting, um, what are your thoughts there? I know there's there's been a lot of different stuff come out. They have like slightly elevated like hybrid shoes um then you still have your your old school people that are wearing flat shoes like um converse and stuff what's your um what's your methodology there the squat comes down to what the bar does on the way up you know i want the bar to travel in the straightest line possible on the way up so typically i i, I would like everybody to be in flats of some sort but if they're in flats and that bar is not coming up the way it's going to come up and they can put on some type of Olympic heel or, I mean, when I, years before I came to Westside, I used to wear a boot, yeah. you know, for a heel because we didn't have the Olympic shoes. And that helped, but it also meant, you know, I, my squad was very dependent upon my quads. You know, so when I came to Westside, he took me out of the boots put me in chucks and took my stance from close to wide and my squat went from 800 to 720, you know, then it went right up to 940, you know, so I had to go three steps back to go three steps forward. But structurally, 
the way that I'm built, I was better squatting wide. You know, mm -hmm. and he could see that from the physical structure and from the biomechanics on how I lifted. So I can't give an answer one way or another because I have to see the lifter squat. You know, and that changes too because if they're if they're five eleven and one hundred and sixty five pounds. And then they, all of a sudden they put on a hundred pounds over the next four years. How that squat looks is going to be completely different than it did when they were a hundred pounds lighter. Right. So, you know, at some point in time, yeah, they may need the heel. Other times they may not need the heel, you know? So as long as that bar goes up straight, I'm cool with whatever it is. You know, it's, it's the same question can kind of be applied to, should they pull sumo or conventional? Well, it depends, you know, what are they stronger at? Because, you know, Mine changed my first competition. I was 198 or 181. You know, at that lightweight, I pulled great sumo, and then somewhere between 230 and 250, my sumo sucked, and I pulled better conventional. And then that lasted up to about 275. And once I got into the 308s, sumo sucked, and I had to go back to conventional. So the answer falls in whatever you can pull the most at. And, and it may change, you know, based upon your body weight, your center of gravity, and all those factors. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so really it's just a, a play it by ear kind of thing and um, see what's best for the person. Um, yeah, just watch the bar path. I mean, the bar path tells everything. It really does. Mm -hmm. You know, on a squat, it should travel in the straight line on the way up. I don't care if you're a rounded back squatter. I don't care if you're a wide squatter. I don't care if you're a narrow squatter. I don't care if your knees shift forward. Or if you sit back, the bar has to come in a straight line all the way up. And if you look at, you know, the rounded back, closed stance guys that really bend over, watch the bar on the way up. The higher level guys, mm -hmm. you guys see a straight line. Yeah. You know, when, when you, so that's when people send me videos and it's like, hey, can you critique my squat? That's what I'm looking at. And if that, if that bar breaks that straight line, now it's okay, What what is this? Is this technical? Is this physical? Is this metal? You know, what, what is the cause for this reason and how do we fix it? You know, so sometimes the answer could be changing the stance, but it's usually one of the last things that I do, you know, because a lot of the times it's usually breathing, bracing, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Bench is the same way. You know, what, what is the bar doing? Where's the bar sitting? You know, is, is it basically over the elbows the entire lift? Because if the bar falls behind the elbow, that's called a tricep extension. Right. You know, if it falls in front of the elbow, it's called a front shoulder raise. You know, so the greatest power is when it's in line with the elbow. You know, and the deadlift, the bar should travel straight up or slightly back. You know, if the barbell's going forward, obviously that's not going to be a good thing. No. Um, so once you look at it from that standpoint, you know, what the bar actually does, the rest of it kind of falls into place. And I know it's easy for me to say because I've been doing this for 40 years, but that, that's where I look first. That's what, that's what I tell my lifters to look when I'm having them and showing them to help each other is watch the fucking bar path. I don't care what everything else is doing. Look at that first. That tells you everything. Mm, cool. That's, I think that's pretty solid advice. Um, so back to, um, some of the training methods at Westside, I know they're pretty, um, pretty well known for their assistance work. Um, mm -hmm. it's, I've, I've read, uh, uh, several things that said that, you know, you might spend 
30 minutes on the, the main lift, whether it's box squats or whatever on like a max effort day, but then you'd spend an hour and a half on assistance work. Um, can you elaborate on, on that? Yeah. If, let's say your bench press, let's, let's break everything down into the simplest modalities that we can. Let's say your pecs are strong enough to bench 400. Your shoulders are strong enough to bench 400. But your triceps are only strong enough to bench 300. Mm-hmm. Guess what you're going to bench? <laughs> right. You know, so you have to look for what that physical weak point is. You know, technique to me, technique still comes first, right? So if the technique is on point and then that person starts to break technique, you know, is it, is it mental because they're not focusing or – is it because their upper back's weak? Is it because their triceps are weak? Is it because the lats can't stay tight? And usually it's always a combination. It's never just one dynamic. It's never just one thing. So when you figure out what that weak point is, you got to fucking pound it. So if it's the lats or it's the upper back or it's the triceps, you pound that until it becomes the strong point. Then when it becomes the strong point, you might see the bar starts drifting back a lot on the bench. Well, now, fuck, it just became shoulders, you know, so now you got to start pounding the shoulders because you can't pound everything at that high volume. You'll never recover. So you have to strategically train what needs to be trained and leave alone what doesn't need to be done. You know, and a lot of lifters, that's they like to do things they like to do, not the things that they really need to do. Now, if they're a recreational lifter, that's fine. That's cool. I have no problem with that because their total isn't, you know, their their main priority. If they're a competitive lifter, they have to learn this is like any other sport, man. 80% of it probably isn't going to be that fun. You got to do what you have to do to get better. But that 20% that is fun, it's, it's, it's fucking amazing. You know, it's like all floor, it's like all foreplay compared to an orgasm. You know, the foreplay is still fun, but it ain't like blowing a nut. Right. You know what I'm saying? So if all you did was foreplay and you never had the finish, that's recreational powerlifting to me. Okay. (laughs) That's a pretty good analogy. (laughs) Um, So the, the, the reason for the, um, the bodybuilder type um, reps and, and, you know, I think uh, a lot of the times, the assistance work was clear up in the 20 rep range. It can't be, you know, there, there's another reason too, which I don't want to not state is if all you're doing is the competitive lift over and over and over and over and over and over, your, your, your wear and tear is going to increase, you know, because it's really the same movement pattern over and over and over again. The other factor is the, the more reps you're going to do, you're going to do more reps in a tired state. So if you're doing, I'm just going to use an extreme because I don't like to call people's programs out. If you're going to do 12 sets of five reps, only the first rep matters, you know, when it comes to a competitive standpoint. So if the first rep is good, but then the next four are bad, the vast majority of that whole training session reinforced bad technique. Mm -hmm. Right? So if you can make sure that with the main lift or the lifts that have the highest correspondence to the main lift are done with damn near perfect technique, then you're always reinforcing good technique. And then you're going to bring up the weak points, you know, with the accessories and supplemental movements. 
On the other end of the scale would be the programs that only use the competitive movements, which I understand them very well, too. And I'm not going to say I have not used those with some of my lifters. I have. You know, the, at the end of the day, what matters is the lifter and their total. Right. So if what I'm doing is not working and I have to pivot to something completely different, I am going to do that. Um, that's that extra workload with the main movement is the equivalent to the supplemental exercises in a conjugate program. You, you see what I'm saying? Yeah. So you, you can't have both. Right. Is you can't have. You can't take like a Chico program and throw in a shit ton of fucking accessory work. You're, you're never going to recover. You know, right. there's going to be a give and take. Um, now with the bodybuilding supplemental type work, that really depends where it falls in the program. So the way I structure it is I'll have the main lift or a core lift, which is after warm-ups, you know, so that's say second in a program. And then a supplemental lift which is going to have the highest correspondence over pushing up whatever that main lift is. So let's say you know as a max effort exercise that every time your floor press goes up, your bench press goes up. Well, I want to do supplemental lifts that are going to make your floor press better. All right, I don't want to do supplemental lifts that are going to make your bench better because I already know it makes your bench better. The floor press and say close grip incline or, you know, cold script bench presses, whatever they are. That supplemental lift, I want to drive that up. So in the case of a floor press, you're actually dealing with the less with less shoulder rotation for a lot of people because the elbows don't go. I mean, if they're really fat, yeah, they are touching their chest, or if they're really big, they're touching your chest. But in most cases, you're dealing with less shoulder rotation and a more tricep extension. Mm -hmm. So I would put in more tricep extensions to try to build that floor press up. And those... So I would train in a heavier range, say six to eight repetitions. Now I may do them at shorter rest intervals so I can get, so, so you can get more out of less weight. Right. I'd rather have you do 60 pound dumbbells for eights with a minute or a minute and a half, and then give you five minutes rest and let you do a hundred pound dumbbells, right. which is going to be more wear and tear on the joint. I mean, that's kind of obvious. You know, which one's going to, they, they both do the same thing as far as stimulating the muscle. Now, when you work down that training day, now you're getting into like shoulder work and accessory work. Uh, that's where I would throw in the higher rep, 20 rep sets. I would throw in, you know, even rest pause stuff, training to failure, you know, anything that's going to, that's going to allow you to use even lighter weight. You know, it's, it's better at that point for you to do. 15 20 pound side raises for sets of 50 then to see if you can lug up 80 pound side raises right you know so mm -hmm. the, the repetitions change so sometimes what you'll see coming out of west side is somebody might have a weak body part say triceps and then you'll read about how they did band pushdowns you know they did 100 rep sets of tricep band pushdowns and they did that every single day well the thing to remember with that is some of that is recuperation and recovery training. Some of that is, you know, training to kind of get ready for the next day. Because if, if you look at how exercises are done a lot of times with bands, there's really not a lot of eccentric contraction. You push down and then the band kind of helps to get back to, you know, on a tricep extension, the band's pulling you up, right? Um, you're not really resisting it. Right. So you're doing a lot of concentric not concentric only, but you're doing a lot of concentric dominant training 
for those ultra high reps, which is easy to recover from. Right. Because the eccentric part of the motion is what really tears your body up. So that's where you're seeing a lot of the 100 rep sets and that kind of stuff come in, why it's there. Cool. And uh, what about um, <clears throat> some of the uh, GPP type, uh, you know, prowler and sled and, um, uh, you know, things like that, heavy carries? Um, <clears throat> how, do, how do those play in and, and how often were you would you be doing that sort of thing? Um, my view on that is probably different than Louis. you okay. know, and <laughs> I view recovery is a different animal, you know, to me, you know, recovery. And this all goes back to a conversation I had with Mel Siff years ago. He told me your body, your body can adapt to recovery methods the same. It can adapt to training methods. And that was profound to me because at the time I was using contrast showers after every training session and I didn't think they were doing anything. But when I first started doing them, I thought they helped a lot. Well, not only did my body get used to it, but then it starts to rely on it. Mm. So then if you can't do it, then your recovery is going to be worse. Which So now you have to think about how can you cycle your recovery modalities. You know, if in, in sled dragging, GPP, that kind of stuff. To me, for a power lifter, it's a recovery modality. Mm. Unless they're in terrible fucking shape. Right. Right? Now, if they're in terrible fucking shape, the first thing I'm going to do is to make sure they're not less than 10 minutes between sets. You know, I'm going to try to take care of the things I can take care of really easy first. And then, because if they're in that bad of shape and you start throwing in sled work and stuff on the off days, they're just going to dig a, 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 a bigger hole. Right. Because they're, they, they're, in, they're, they're, they're in too shitty shape. You know, you can be in too poor of shape. <laughs> right. Or, you know, if it's, you know, a super heavy weight that's in terrible shape, it might just start with five minute walking on a treadmill. You know, not even walking outside on the fucking treadmill where the belt can actually do some of the work of the hamstring. So, you know, the, the least restrictive or the, the least, the easiest thing to adapt to. Yeah. What I want in there. So now when you start pushing into a training cycle, recovery becomes harder and harder and harder. And then workload also becomes harder and harder. The stronger you get, workload becomes a factor as well. If you know, especially if you're training conjugate, because there's there's a high workload when it comes to dynamic work and stuff like that. That workload starts to become like shit. You know, if I start doing more, you know, here there's no way I'm gonna recover. But now you can get some workload on the off days. You know, with certain accessory exercises or sled, prowler, that type of work for conditioning. The sled essentially is working your hamstrings. You know, if you're forward walking. You know, because you're going to walk deliberate, you're going to try to pull your, push your heel, you know, through. And then when you step out, kick your leg almost into a straight position, hit the ground and then leg curl mm-hmm. each step. So it's a, it's a way to put blood flow into the hamstrings to help with recovery. You know, there's sidewards dragging, you know, which is more adductor. Upper body sled dragging, which is, that's concentric only to the, the max. You know, because you walk forward and, you know, raise the straps high. Yeah. And then as soon as you drop your arms, the sled stops. So that's all concentric only. So anybody that has a hard time with the shoulder recovery from benching, that would be somebody I would say, hey, look, on the day after benching, looking at doing some upper body sled work. But if they're recovering from training session to training session to training session, and they're making progress and they're staying on point to where they need to be, I won't even suggest it 
Okay. Now, if I start to see those nonverbals, and this is what a lot of coaches don't have if they're working online, if I start to see that the person doesn't seem to be paying as attention or isn't as focused in training as what they normally, nonverbals always show up before physical right. weak points, always. If I start to see those, then I will tell them, look, what, are you hydrating? And that's where I go first. All right, what, what's your fluid intake? Are you breaking? in enough fluids usually that's the that's my first place because usually that's where people fuck up the most right and then it'll be nutritionally or you know are you going out fucking drinking every night you know it's you, you gotta explore all these other variables and then it can be look you need to start doing you know the sled riding but i will look back and say okay they're eight weeks out is this something if i put this in there i know i might be able to run it for three or four weeks what do I have to trade with it to be able to run for the next three or four weeks? Because if I know the upper body sled work is going to be the best, maybe I want to save that for the four weeks before the meet and then introduce that with maybe uh, band pull-aparts or phase poles, you know, with a very light mini band for the first phase. You see, you see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, over a period of time with – any type of any type of training, it doesn't have to be conjugate. You're going to find certain exercises and certain supplemental exercises that are just gold. They always work. I mean, for me, close grip incline press always took my bench up. So I only did those fuckers the last six weeks before me. They went into my gold box. It was like I'm not touching them. That's where it goes. From a recovery standpoint, nothing's ever beat chiropractic. So that goes into the gold box. You know, for my shoulders, as far as the shoulder recovery, upper body, all these things kind of go into the gold box and they get stored away. And then during the time that's not that critical, you know, off-season type training, I hate to use the word critical because off-season type training is when you're trying new stuff, you know, different Mm -hmm. recovery modalities, different dynamic training waves, different training cycles. Some are going to work, some aren't going to work, but you're trying to, you're trying to find more shit to put in the gold box. You know, so over a period of time, let's say you have a gold suitcase, that's fucking awesome because now you're ready to get ready for any meet at any time. So the off-season actually becomes, over a period of time, more critical to the lifter than the actual preseason. Because, you know, if I got a beginner lifter, I don't know what's in the gold box. I have no clue. Right. You know, until they get to the meet, maybe I get one little thing to put in there. Now, in the off season, we can try all kinds of crazy shit and see what what helps. You know, because they're they're going to be a little bit weaker in the off season, so you're going to be able to see spikes in strength a little easier too. And um, it's like so that's that's where I think a lot of lifters screw up as well is they'll do a meet and then it's like, oh, okay, fuck, I'm not going to do another meet for six months, and then they just don't do shit. You know, they. And you got to rest, you know, you got to recover, you got to rest, you got to change your training, but you still should be experimenting to see what supplemental exercises are going to help the most, what diet changes you can make, you know, will carb loading before a training session help you or will it hurt you? Will sodium loading help you? Because trust me, 23 weeks out from a meet, if you try to carb load and it makes your stomach, you know, feel fucked up when you squat, it doesn't really matter. You know, if you try to do it six weeks out before a meet and you end up shitting after you your shit your pants after the first two sets, it matters. <laughs> right. Um, so you mentioned uh, earlier 
that you did the warm-ups and then the main lift. Um, that's another thing that uh, you kind of hear mixed um, theories on from anybody that, that's come out of uh, Westside. Um, you know, Louie uh, apparently isn't real big on warm-ups, but um, some of the other guys that come out of there, they are really big on warm-ups. Um, so what, what's your take on all of that? I think, I think it, people make it too complicated. I really do. Look at what it's, it's a warm up, right? Right. So you have to be warmed up to do the skill that you want to train. All right. So if, if it's a squat day, you, you want your body temperature. I mean, there's certain things that a warm up should do. You want your body temperature to be a little high. You know, if you can have a little bit of sweat on your body, you want a little bit of sweat on your body. Now, when does that have to happen? It should happen before 50%. Right. You know, whatever the training is for that day. So, and you have to be warmed up to do that movement. So if all it takes is a person, you know, I've had warm-up sessions where all I used was, you know, I would box squat for body weight squats on a box for 10, 15 sets. And I train with sweats, and I've always kind of trained with sweats at all times. I want, I, especially the older I am now, I beat the fuck up. I want everything to be hot. I want, you know, I, I just feel better that way. Um, but, and there could be other times where I always start every session by doing a box squat, just a, a free sit to stand squat. And sometimes it's like, holy shit, this feels pretty good. You know, then I'll do a few sets of that. Other times it's like, oh my God, my back is fucking jacked up. <laughs> then, you know, it may be doing bird dogs. It may be, you know, I, I keep the foam roller off my lower back. If I do anything, it's just upper back, you know, or lats because the lats might be tight. Um, so I based it on when I was powerlifting, I based it on how I felt. So some days there really wasn't a whole lot that I needed to do because I would have been in the second session of guys squatting. So I've already loaded plates. I've already changed plates. So I've already done, you know, 25 stiff leg deadlifts, right. you know, you know, loading plates. I'm already sweating. I'm already ready to go. Um, by that time, I probably have done a couple sets of pull down abs. Now for my lifters in general, I want them all to do some type of reverse hyper before they, this is before every training session. And it's usually done in a circuit. It can be a reverse hyper. Usually I want them to do a bent knee reverse hyper. So I don't really want spinal loading. I just want the glutes. I want the lower back to stretch and the glutes to be flexing. And then I know they'll do it. I mean, here's the other thing. They have to do it. If I tell them I want them to do a reverse hyper with the straps around their ankle, I just lower the odds of them doing it by 50%. If I say a bent knee reverse hyper, I just increased it significantly. Um, I want them to do hanging leg raises because I want the spinal distraction and because you're hanging, so you're, mm -hmm. you know, it opens yeah. the spine up. It stretches the spine out. Um, so I want the hanging leg raises. I want pull down abs, which is just cable ab work. But if you've got a cable that you're holding behind your neck and you're bending over, you're also stretching your hamstrings. You know, so... Every exercise I have them do, if it's pull down abs, glute ham raises, bent knee reverse hyper, and hanging leg raises, they're doing them not for the reasons they think. Right. They're doing the pull down abs to kind of loosen the hamstrings up. They're doing the hanging leg raises to distract the lower back. 
They're doing the bent knee reverse hypers just to get their glutes firing a little bit and to warm the back up a little bit more in a very short range of motion. And they're doing the glute ham raise to also kind of stretch the back and to put some type of primer, like a training stimulus, to kind of get them ready. And the other thing that does is the things that most people will skip in training is lower back and abs. So I just guarantee that they've trained their lower back, abs, and hamstrings. Even if it's just at a low intensity, I guarantee it's done. Because after they do their main movement, there still are glute ham raise, hanging leg raises, and real reverse hypers. <laughs> so they're actually doing them twice yeah. in, in a day. But once is the warm-up. And I've had great success with that. And now how... How many rotations at this point? All my lifters have been with me for a long enough period of time. I leave that up to them. You know, if, they, if one rotation's good, it's good. If they got to do it three or four times, they do it three or four times. But as soon as they start squatting and they get a plate on the bar, things better start looking good. You know, if it looks like something's tight to their ankles or whatever it is, then they haven't done their job. So, it, and it doesn't take a long period of time. Sometimes you can get have this big warm up scheme. And it works as a deterrent because who wants to do eight fucking things of warm-ups? It's going to take 20 minutes to be able to squat. So they're just going to say, fuck it. And then they're going to get under a bar and start squatting. And they're going to go 135, 225, 315, you know, and, and not even take small jumps, you know. And so a lot of that, too, falls within educating the lifter. You know, like, look, if you're late and you do have to jump in and you can't do that stuff, do the bar, do 95, do 135, do 185, do 225. You know, do more sets, you know, more first reps to kind of warm up a little bit. And so they have options. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, that's cool. Um, I, I've always, I always, with my people, they always want to go, <laughs> go plate jumps too. I think that's the... Uh just the, the go-to for most athletes. They want to make the, the big jumps and get to the big weights. Um, but yeah, you do have to definitely slow people down sometimes and say, Hey, warming up is kind of important. <laughs> so. Yeah. Well, I, if, I mean, if we're speaking, let's say I'm working with a wrestler and it's rare, let's say I'm working with a wrestler. I'm working with a football player. Um, I, I'm going to want to have them do a little bit more warm up work than what I'm going to want my lifters to do. Right. Because they're typically going to be doing a little bit different exercises. And now from that standpoint, I'm either going to ask the athlete or I'm going to ask their coach, what skill do they suck at? Because if it's a wrestler and their drop step sucks, guess what their warm-ups are going to be? Right. You know, the more specific I can make their warm-ups to the actual specific sport skill, I'm going to do it. Because to me, it makes no fucking sense to have them do high knee skips when they can do drop, drop steps. Right. You know, one of them's going to integrate better coordinational skills for the sport. The other one's going to just have one purpose. Right. You know, just warm them up. That's where I think a lot of strength coaches kind of drop the ball a little bit is they get into all these different warm-up drills, and then you look at some of the drills, and you're like, you know what, that isn't that far removed from a lateral shuffle that a linebacker would do. Right. So why not just have them do the lateral shuffle? Right. That way they can reinforce that skill because coaches can only work with athletes for so many weeks out of the year. You know, 
via NCAA or whatever division they're playing in. Yeah, um, I, th- I think that's that's definitely good advice, and and I think you see that in like you said a lot of the the better coaches. I think um, Coach uh, Dan John does something um, similar with that, and uh, mm-hmm. he, he has that. If it's important, you do it every day, and and your warm ups are are uh, designed around things that that maybe you suck at, and and you do those yes. during the warm ups to get better, because then you're doing it every day, and and you have no choice but to get better. I agree a thousand percent with that, you know, it's without yeah. a doubt. <clears throat> so, um, we're almost out of time here, but I wanted to, I want to ask you one tough question. <clears throat> um, so who do you think was, uh, stronger Louis Sear or Paul Anderson? God, I mean, we ask questions like that, you're dealing with different time frames. <laughs> I'm, I'm just going to say Paul Anderson because I've always been the guy that's been, you know, get big and lift bigger weights. Yeah. You know, so it's, I, I'm not really like the coefficient type of guy. It's like, fuck it, you know. Everybody can be 300 if you really want to be. Right. You know, so, you know <laughs> just, just the fact that you can't eat enough to be 300 and you want to be 198 pounds, you know, that's your fault. You could be 300 if you wanted to be. Um, so I've always kind of fallen more in that super heavyweight mindset. So cool. I, I would say that I, I, to be honest with you, I really don't care. But if, if I, since my hand is being forced to answer, that would be it. All right. Well, I think I think we're in the same uh, in agreement there. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, I'm definitely not a coefficient guy as well. I think um, strong stronger is stronger. Um, if you wanna, if you wanna split hairs, I guess that's one thing. But but stronger is stronger. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, I wanna I wanna thank you uh, for taking the time to do this. I, I know you're um, a busy guy, and, and uh, you got a lot going on, especially now um, with the holidays coming up and your business and stuff. So I do appreciate ta- you taking the time out to do this. And uh, maybe we can do it again in the future. <clears throat> Sounds good. Yeah, I learned a lot. I want to thank you for that. And um, this has been Get Strong or Die.